0: This marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. Let's do it. All I- right.
1: Oh, my Lordy. I got to stop saying all right before I'm really ready. Here we go. Oh, I don't even start today. Huh.
0: Hi, I'm Kimberly Adams, and I'm starting today on Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense.
1: Worst part is, I could have gotten away with it. I could have just stayed quiet, and nobody would have known <laughs> totally that I don't. Could know have. What I'm doing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm Kyle Rizdal. This is What Do You Want to Know Wednesday? You bring questions, we bring the answers. You can get your question on the podcast by leaving us a voicemail at 508 Smart, or you can email us if you'd like to do that too. MakeMeSmart at marketplace.org. We read them all. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. We do. All right. Our first question is about the Super Bowl. Let's hear it. Hi, Kimberly and Kai. This is Sammy calling from Austin, Texas. Like many Americans,
1: I was watching Super Bowl 57 with my family recently.
0: When the Chiefs won the
1: game, the stadium was filled with red, white, and yellow confetti. The new champions immediately put on custom-made hats that read Super Bowl 57 champions Mm -hmm. with the Kansas City logo. This got me wondering, what happens to all the confetti hats Shirts and other merchandise which is designed to celebrate wins that don't actually happen. Who's yeah. buying all those custom-made Super Bowl 57 champions hats with Eagles logos on them? Yeah. Seems like a yeah. heck of a lot of confetti looking for a home. Thanks for making me smart. Yeah, for sure. You want this one or am I taking this
0: one? Uh, why don't you go ahead? All
1: right. So uh, this happens in every major sport every single year. They preprint all this merch, whether it's the NHL or Major League Baseball or the NBA or whatever, and 50% of it is fundamentally useless in this country, and the in-this-country part is the important part. The NFL and and all those other uh, major league sports don't want uh, the erroneous gear, shall we say, uh, circulating in this country. So the NFL in particular partners with a nonprofit called Good 360, and it distributes that merchandise to other nonprofits in Africa and Asia, Eastern Europe, also the Middle East, so that people who are in need can benefit from the free clothing and it gets us out of the American market, which is, of course, the market that the NFL worries most about. Um, they do, these nonprofits, say, have uh, protocols that keep the donated items from being resold. And I imagine somehow leading to, to some sort of um, unwanted or illicit profit. Um, NFL, by the way, does the same thing for the AFC and the NFC Championship Games. Also about that, confetti, by the way, 3,000 pounds of it. I did not know. I, the other part. The first part of this answer I knew, the second part of this answer I did not. So props to Courtney and Antonio are <laughs> uh production staff for, for looking this up. 3,000 pounds of confetti uh, made for the Super Bowl. Half has one team's colors, the Chiefs in this case. Half has the Eagles' colors. Um, and the executive producer of the post-game show says the confetti is made from 98% recycled material and the confetti for the losing team is sent back to the manufacturer to make new confetti. Now, does that mean that 1,500 pounds of confetti gets distributed and trampled and, and used and then probably thrown away somewhere? Yes, but not as bad as it could have been, I
0: guess. Why not just, like, give the confetti to the losing team and be like, use it at your own home games?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Because, well, I don't think they have, like, confetti at NFL home games. I don't know. I've only been to a couple of NFL games. I don't know. Good question. Hmm. Good question. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of questions, here's the next one. Hey, Kimberly and Kai. It's uh, Chip from San Francisco. I was just calling with a question that I was talking about with a friend of mine recently about credit cards, specifically uh, this gamification of spending. We both recently got, you know, these cards with more points for eating or traveling. And we were left wondering, what is the economics behind all that? And what do credit card companies have to benefit from basically mm-hmm. paying you to spend money, which seems kind of silly. So, yeah, I was wondering if you could make me smart about that. Uh, thank you. Love y'all. Bye.
0: No, I love you too. Thanks, Chip. <laughs> um, I too have played this game mm. of trying to do the points thing and. Oh, I remember one year I used rewards points to get gift cards that I used as Christmas gifts for all of my nieces and nephews. And I was very proud of myself that year. Um, but what Trip, Chip is talking about specifically are these popular rewards and cashback programs that, yes, in some instances do give you points. And when those points add up, you can get cash back or you can get, uh, you can use it to, you know, get stuff like gift cards or sometimes even actual items. And in other instances, the, it's not just the points. You can also get a cash back, like a tiny percentage back of whatever is spent on a transaction, usually like one to five percent. The very first credit card company to introduce this concept was good old discover in 1986. But here's the big thing. The money that you're getting back or the stuff that you're getting or those gift cards that I was getting, they are not free, right? You end up paying for it in a variety of different ways. The money comes from customers via fees, higher interest rates on the credit cards. The credit card companies are basically betting that by incentivizing you with these rewards – you will spend more money on the credit card and that you're going to spend more in fees and interest rates than you're going to get back in cash rewards or points or whatever. Or that if you spend the money, you might miss a payment and then you'll really get hit with the fees or something like that. So they're basically taking a bet that -hmm. they're going to make more money off of you by incentivizing you with these programs than you will make off of them. Now, let's just say you are the model consumer, right? (laughs) And you are Mm -hmm. racking up all these points and buying all your stuff on the credit card, but then you pay it down to zero at the end of the month. So they get nothing from you on interest. They only get a little bit from you and whatever the annual fee is, and you come out on top right? So then you think that that means you're getting it all for free. Well, yeah, you are. But that money still has to come from somewhere, which means it just comes from people who can't pay their bills off every month. It means the people who are paying those late fees and those higher interest rates and all those other Fees that come along with credit cards are effectively subsidizing all of your rewards. So that that's happening. Yeah. Also, <laughs> merchants are paying the bill for those cash rewards right. program through what are called interchange fees. These are fees that merchants pay when they accept credit card payments. Sometimes you'll go shopping and you'll see... Uh, a small business say, you know, minimum purchase required for a credit card or please cash is preferred mm. or we're adding an additional fee for credit cards. It's because they're trying to recoup some of these interchange fees. And um, according and and so like there are a lot more places, at least here in D.C., where they are basically begging people not mm. to use credit cards mm. or they're only wanting people to use debit cards because the fees are tend to be a little bit lower. But getting back to the whole credit card debt in general thing, according to the latest quarterly report from TransUnion, which is one of these big three credit reporting agencies, total credit card debt got to a record $930.6 billion at the end of 2022, which was an 18.5% spike uh, from a year earlier. That comes from CNBC. Long story short, use your credit card responsibly. Uh, if you are gonna try to use some of these rewards points uh, and some of these cash back offers, please do your best to you know pay that off before your billing date is up. But you know, also be mindful. Like this, this does come from somewhere. So not to make anybody feel badly about their gift cards and you know free vacations or whatever, but somebody is footing the bill for that, uh, and that free money is. Might seem like a good deal, but it's not quite as generous as you might think.
1: Yeah. Ain't, ain't no free money, for sure. That's the thing. No that. such thing. You bet.
0: Yes. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Next up, we got an email from Paul in Seattle. And that email says, what does the COVID national emergency cover? Does it mean medical care cost is covered? Does this go away when the emergency is declared over? What else will change?
1: So there are a lot of things that are going to change, not all of which are going to be able to answer in the next 45 seconds to a minute. Right. So there's ample opportunities for for a deep dive on this one. But in a in a very big nutshell, here's what's happening. President Biden is going to end. Uh, the public health emergency on May the 11th, and, and most particularly, that means that extra money that's been out there for pandemic programs is going to go away. Here are some of the things that might happen. Universal access to COVID tests and vaccines will come to an end. The government's not going to pay for those anymore. In general, costs for tests and vaccines and COVID medications will go up, but that does very much depend on how you are insured. Americans could lose Medicaid insurance because one COVID provision, it's called Medicaid continuous enrollment, prevented states from kicking people off Medicaid, even if they were no longer eligible during this public health emergency for what I hope are obvious reasons, right? When that emergency ends, states are going to check eligibility again. And they could, if they so choose, right, because Medicaid is a joint federal and state program, they could enforce eligibility requirements. The Biden administration figures that 15 million Americans or more might be affected for that by that, so that's uh, sort of a big deal. Here's another uh, uh, medical care thing that's become really popular during the pandemic. I personally have taken part in this and 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 used mm-hmm. it to my advantage. Telehealth, um, mm-hmm. that's probably going to stay, right? But mm-hmm. if you're on Medicare, expanded telehealth access. Uh, is going to probably end. Congress can make it permanent. Congress can change all of these things if it is of a mind to. But there are lots of things that are going to change. And I'll tell you what, and I'm going to give Courtney and Antonio a little bit of work here. We're going to put some resources on the show page. I'm sure the White House has like a fact sheet on what's going to change. Um, CDC probably as well. Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services probably as well. Just to check and Mm -hmm. see what's going to happen. Because honestly, COVID is still a thing. Yep. There There was a great piece in The Atlantic today by Jen Sr. about long COVID, by the way. amazing um anyway do some research because because medical care in this country is expensive and lots of stuff is going to change
0: yeah the telehealth thing is so interesting because that's been a, a huge boon for uh the mental health care field um because one of the other things that that emergency um declaration did was it kind of eased some of the restrictions around licensing requirements for that kind of stuff. And so it'll be very interesting to see if if that's allowed because it allowed a lot of mental health providers to practice across states so you have places like New York and and other big cities where there are a ton of mental health care providers but mm-hmm. the need is much greater in sort of rural areas and then allowed sometimes people to to practice in different places and that was really helpful for a lot of folks.
1: Yeah, let's let's go, go ahead and give the call to mind shout out. I mean, there's a, you guys do a lot. Yes,
0: of I will totally give the Call to yeah. Mind shout-out. We have our mental health program from APM uh, called to Mind, and we did an entire episode, an uh, entire show on telehealth and virtual mental health care during the pandemic, and uh, we have a bunch of resources on that show page as well. And, uh, yeah, I hope you listen. Yeah. We worked really hard on it.
1: Uh, okay, last question for today.
0: Hi, my name is Adriana calling from San Antonio. Do you think that people should be sharing their salaries with others mm. in the hopes of eliminating gender-based pay, or do you think that that's just um, possibly creating a toxic culture? Thank you so much, and mm. have a blessed day. It's a good question. Thank you. Um, I'll give my personal opinion, and then I'll say what the research <laughs> shows. Uh, I think that it's a good idea to share your salary. I mean, we we definitely like had a moment here at Marketplace where all the reporters were like, you know what, let's just do this. Let's just all put it on the table. And it was really illuminating. And it, it helped us all, you know, talk to each other a bit better about, you know, what we what we were doing, what we were trying to do. And In general, uh, while talking about how much you make can feel uncomfortable – Rima has a whole thing about Mm -hmm. it on this is Mm -hmm. uncomfortable Mm – there are a lot of benefits to being open about pay with your coworkers, especially – for women and people of color and you know we've gone into this before but in case it needs to be said out loud women and people of color are paid less on average than white men and women are more likely to ask for lower pay and receive fewer raises and then on top of that when women do ask for raises we tend to get more pushback when we do. Um, open discussion about salary can help workers figure out if they're being underpaid or how much of a raise they should ask for. And everybody benefits from pay transparency. If you know what your colleague is being paid, you're in a better position To negotiate regardless of your gender or race. Or if you're just starting out in a field and you can get a sense of what other people in the field are making, it can, you know, put you in a good place. Um, you know, to, to start out knowing what to ask for. And even for companies, it can help out a lot because, you know, it can eliminate some of the secrecy around it when you can just be like, Hey, this is what it is. (laughs) You know, this is the range that we're working in. Um, Also, there are a lot of new pay transparency laws that are requiring employers to post that salary range on job postings. It's intended to help solve pay inequity. However, a lot of employers are trying to get around that by posting ridiculously large ranges that are effectively useless. Or they're just ignoring it in some cases, like companies that have jobs that could be done remotely in some of the places with pay transparency laws, but they're just still choosing not to post that range. Um, but it is super important to note that if you do choose to talk to your colleagues about your pay, uh, it is illegal for your employer to retaliate no matter where you are. You, No matter what your boss says, you can totally talk to your colleagues about how much money you're all making. So there
1: you go. Yeah. So so yes to everything Kimberly said, and I would just uh, about Adriana's point of of uh, does discussing salaries create a toxic culture? I think it's the, actually the other way around. I think the secrecy around mm-hmm. salaries is what creates or helps to create can lead to a toxic culture. Right? There's a lot that goes into a toxic culture in an office, but but salary discrepancies and secrecy around them uh, mm-hmm. is certainly one of those factors, for sure.
0: Well, and it can create a toxic work culture when you're talking about you know, paid and pay disparities if the company then chooses not to do anything about it. Yes. Or if the people who are benefiting from the system kind of entrench it or, you know, don't, you know, participate in efforts to make things more equitable. So, yeah, if you find out that all the women or the people of color in your office are making half of what their white male peers are and all the dudes are just like, too bad for you, then, yeah, you're going to have a toxic workplace culture. But ideally, that's not what happens.
1: Yeah, that's not the way it goes. (laughs) All right.
0: We end uh, on that
1: today. It's uh, what do you want to know Wednesday? If you've got a question for us about business or tech or the economy or, you know, anything, we'll take any question, you know. Mm -hmm. Might not make it on the pod, but we're always interested in knowing what you guys think. You know how to get a hold of us, 508-827-6278, 508-UBSMART, or MakeMeSmart at Marketplace.org.
0: Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras. And today's program was engineered by Juan Carlos Torado.
1: Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our acting senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcast. Francesca Levy is the executive director of Digital and On Demand.